0: If there are any more children that need to go, uh, Francisco's will lead you out that way. Last call. (laughs) I want to thank Pastor for the opportunity to come up and uh, teach this morning, or this evening, and I, uh, I uh, always count it a privilege to be ever asked to do that behind this pulpit. I'd like you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at the last verse first. The last verse first, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 58. An early verse. I was so fortunate in my youth ministry to have a whole list of verses that our youth director, after we got saved, uh, told us to memorize. And 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight was one of them, um, and it's probably a very popular verse in this chapter. It says, "Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor." is not in vain in the Lord. And I, uh, I count that as a precious verse, but do you know it wasn't until rather recently that I actually looked at its context? Because I got three questions about it that the context of the verse will answer. The first question is this, why therefore? If it starts with the first word of the verse is therefore, it's telling us that it's an application of something that came before that. And what was that that came before it? That's the first question. Secondly, I've always been curious about this. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. Now, to me, steadfast and unmovable are the opposite of always abounding. It sounds like it's saying be steadfast in the work of the Lord, be unmovable in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I got a question about that. How is that possible? Thirdly, Paul says, for we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He doesn't say, we hope. He doesn't say, well, we have faith that it isn't. He doesn't say, well, probably it's not in vain. He says, we know. And it seems like the only way you can say we know our labor is not in vain, in the Lord, is because of something he said before this. So, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in context, is the goal of tonight's message. To take not a verse-by-verse look at 1 Corinthians 15, because that would take too long, but a survey. And in the process of that survey, try to answer those three questions. First off, but therefore. Secondly, how is it that we can be steadfast, and moveable, and always abounding? And thirdly, how can we know our labors not in vain in the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word and see answers to these questions. This wonderful verse has encouraged very many, and I ask you, Lord, that it would continue, especially in its context, as we would treasure its promise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to first go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. The, the chapter starts, and it's, it's considered one of, the most chapters, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, I think they've had Bible scholars or Bible people very familiar with the Bible over the years list, the most important chapters in the Bible, and this one's always in it. 1 Corinthians 15 is always recognized as being a critical doctrinal important chapter of the Bible. And it starts this way. Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And we, we probably are recognizing here a good definition for what the gospel is, the gospel message. And it's important to recognize that the gospel message is not built on a statement of faith. The gospel message is not a creed. The, the gospel is a list of facts, of historical facts, things that really happened, and so as he, as he listened, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus are, de- are declared as being, Paul says, the gospel. But he goes beyond that. To show you that these are dealing with facts, he uses and again. It says in verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But he didn't stop there. In the next verse it says, and that he was seen as Cephas and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time, you notice that the gospel isn't just, you know, his description of what the gospel is doesn't stop with the resurrection. It, it, it goes on to the appearances of Jesus. And the appearances of Jesus to those witnesses that up to 500 at a time could testify that they saw the living Christ, including Paul, who saw him on the road to Damascus. He's saying that is an important part of the message too. I, I know I want to stop usually after verse 3. When it, uh, verse four, when it comes to defining the gospel, but Paul didn't. In other words, what we're saying is that he really says this is this is a fact. This is not something that we just have a feeling that happened, but it can be proven. We have witnesses. I tell you what. Do you think any court in our land, if or if you had a defense lawyer and you were being accused of a crime, and he, and, he, and that defense lawyer asked you, uh. Do you have any witnesses where you were during that bank robbery? Maybe that would help. Do you think if you had one witness, the, the, the defense lawyer would be glad, right? Or two, right? What do you say? Oh, yeah, I got 500. 500. They can testify they saw me. all oh, at the same time. Somewhere else, I wasn't there near the bank. That would be a great thing to have in a court of law, that many witnesses. And Paul's pointing out that that is the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is something that our faith is built upon a fact, not just a creed. Amen. You know what he says here? He says, and Paul goes on, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. You know, I I know it's faith for me to believe that Jesus rose from the grave, because I haven't seen him. But it is a reasonable faith. It is one that is not unreasonable because of, again, the witness that we have of those. You know, people sometimes die for lies. But they believe they're true. Right? Right? People sometimes give up their lives for a lie. But they believed it was true. It's much harder, if impossible, to find people who will willingly die for a lie that they believe is a lie. And these apostles did that. They believed truly that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's a fact to them. You know, uh, one of the great things about the resurrection is about how it gives hope. The resurrection of Christ gives hope. It gives us something to anticipate. It gives us something to look forward to. I don't mean hope as in, I hope I get pizza tomorrow for supper. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about hope as in, I am anticipating something. So It's like when my dad used to tell me, we're going to go camping. We're going to do something special this weekend. We're all week at school. I was like, I was thinking about that. Man, when I get it, you know, we get the weekend, I'm going to go camping with my family. You know, I anticipated it. And the resurrection of Christ gives the believer hope, something to anticipate, to look forward to. We all need that. Now, again, we're doing a quick survey of 1 Corinthians 15, trying to answer those three questions about verse 58. Why, therefore? (laughs) You know, what is it that he is, has uh, made an application in verse 58? What, what, was, build, what was that application built on? Secondly, how can you be steadfast, immovable, all is abounding? And the third thing we're trying to answer that question is, how do we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord? How do we know that? Okay, so here's the second part. First Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. It's about the importance of Christ's resurrection. The fact of his resurrection at the beginning of the chapter, and now the importance of his resurrection. Look what he says in verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Do you realize that among the Corinthian church, besides all the other problems they seem to have, there were some that were standing up and say this whole idea of the resurrection is is just not reasonable. I mean, you think about it. It is not reasonable to believe that God would take the bodies of dead people and stand them up. In fact, that's what the word literally means. It means for a corpse to stand up. That's the resurrection. That's what the word means. For a dead person to stand up. And, and in the minds of these Corinthian Greeks, you know, they just didn't think that was reasonable at all because, first off, in the Greek way of thinking, your body's a prison. Your soul and your spirit are imprisoned and when you die you're released why in the world would you want that prison back why would you want your body back so in the in in their pagan days these before they became believers they were steeped in this idea that a resurrection would be just totally silly and now that they have become believers, they are saying, some of them, you know, we, st- we still think this resurrection idea is not that great. You know, when uh, Roger Williams, and I, I don't know why, you know, Roger Williams was, a, you know, the founder of Rhode Island, those kinds of things. Well, evidently, some, sometime, I don't know why, they dug up his body. They were going to move his coffin. And they found apple tree roots growing through his coffin. And so people began to think, wait a second, I've eaten from that apple tree. (laughs) Some of the atoms, some of the molecules from Roger Williams probably made their way up into that tree and then into that apple, and I ate him, and now those have become part of me? And, you know, people go on and on, and they'll, they'll try to make the resurrection idea just sound so impossible. How is it that all these, all these parts of people over the years that have turned to dust and probably become parts of other people and become parts of other people become? How's it God going to put them all back together? You know, the, uh, the importance of his resurrection is going to be this part here. It has to happen. Look what it says. Now, if Christ be preached, verse 12, that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised and if Christ be not raised your faith is vain ye are yet in your sins then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men most miserable oh the importance of the resurrection cannot be overestimated everything that you're doing right now you might as well just go home if Christ is still in his grave Because anything you're doing is useless and vain if he's still in the grave. Ask a dead man who has no power over death to save you from death. That's what you're doing if he's still in the grave. Paul's saying, this doesn't make sense. How, if Christ is not risen, how in the world can you go on with church? How can you go on with God? How can you go on with, with what you're doing and pray? How can you give your money? How can, you, how can you sacrifice for God? How can you do all that? Because if he's still in his grave, it's all for nothing. That's how important it is. I guess there are people that would keep up the charade. They would keep going to church. They would keep giving their money. They would keep, they look at church as some kind of support group. They like meeting people. They like the people. They want to they wanna just have, you know, a good, clean group of people to hang around. Not me. I love a good group. I'm not saying I don't like a good group of clean people, all right? I'm not. I'm talking about I, I know there's a lot of good. But if this isn't true, if Christ is still in his grave, Paul says, I'm a liar because I preach that he rose from the grave. This is really important. The resurrection of Christ is not just a, a thing. It's a fact, and it is something that if we are not able to acknowledge it as a fact, then why are we here? All right, so I love verse 20. There's a there's a cantata. I don't know if it's Tom Peterson or whoever does this, but it's a... I remember this one line, because we did it at Florida Bible College, the orchestra, the choir, all of us. And it got to this part, and it says, but now is Christ risen. And he goes, but now is Christ risen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Wow. I remember at the choir director, after he finished directing that, sitting down, and he had tears flowing down his face. It's very powerful. That verse... I mean, that, okay, everything is useless if Christ is still in the grave, but now is Christ risen, and the whole story is different. It says in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be all made alive. Do you know that the importance of the resurrection of Christ is that his resurrection... Is a model of what ours will be like. And because of his resurrection, we will experience a resurrection. And you know, we aren't talking about a revival. We aren't talking about where God just breathes life back into this corpse and then it walks around, you know. We aren't talking about that. We're talking about whatever his resurrection was like, ours will be like. And God, I love the way he never loses never loses. He says, okay, if the first Adam is because of him that we all became sinners, it's, if it's because of him we all die, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm not going to send an angel. I'm not going to send some special creature that I make to save humanity. I'll become a man. And it'll be, if a man brought death, it'll be a man who brings life. That's what Paul says here. That's, that's just God's way. And, do you know, when he made us, he made us body, soul, and spirit. We're made in his image. I believe that's really what he means. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. Uh, Tom, body, soul, spirit. Three in one. And to only save my soul, to only save my spirit, but to leave my body here someplace, rotting in a grave. You think God will lose a, a third of us? You know, a part of us? You know, a third I'll say two-thirds of you, but the other third, no, we're we not going to deal with that. He means to save us body, soul, and spirit. Now, the people that have passed on, my mom, my dad, I know their bodies are, 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 are still around here. But there's going to be a great reunion of their souls and spirits with their bodies. Do you know, we tend to think when we die uh, before the Lord comes back that we are just up in heaven and don't care about anything down here. No, we are not finished with this world. When we get to heaven before the Lord returns, we're probably anticipating just as much as his, his return as you are that are living here. Because when he returns, that's when the Bible describes there's a resurrection and your soul, body, and spirit will be reunited all together. And so it's, it's an important moment. In fact, I love the way he says it here. In verse 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits after them them that are Christ that is coming. Firstfruits means, I guess in the, in the land of Israel, they actually had a feast, the first fruits, And when they brought in the first of the harvest, it was supposed to be an indication of what's to follow. There's more to come. And I guess you would say if it was a great first fruits, if it all looked very good, then the whole harvest was anticip- anticipated to be good. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. There's no big, I, I, I think some of the denominations fell into this trap of thinking there's one big general re- resurrection, resurrection at the same time. But Paul definitely says there's an order that happens. First comes Christ. And by the way, he's the only one that's ever been resurrected. All right, and there's no one else that's ever been resurrected. I mean, uh, okay, so there were some people, uh, three I can count in the Old Testament that, that experienced revivals. They were dead and they came back to life here, and then they died again. And there were three in the, in the Gospels that were dead and Jesus brought them back to life. And Lazarus as an example, but Lazarus is not walking around anymore. He died again. Wow, that man got the, the opportunity to die twice. What a blessing. But, but the fact is, there's a when it when it comes to there haven't been any resurrection except one. In the way that we're anticipating our resurrection to be, all right. Look what it says, please. Then, uh, but every man in verse twenty three, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits; after that, them which are Christ at His coming. So that's next. It's not the rapture next. I'm waiting for you to say whoa. whoa, whoa. The rapture's not next. The next thing is the resurrection of all the saints that have died from the time of uh, Pentecost to the time now. All of them that have died, their bodies left here. The first thing that's going to happen, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that their bodies will be raised. Their spirits come with him. Their bodies will be raised. And then the rapture. But the next thing on God's calendar is not the rapture. I know, it's just a little bit afterwards, but it's the resurrection. And look what he says, please, in verse 24. Then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is the body. Now, that's not what he says. I, I, I read it wrong on purpose. But that's the Greek mind. Destroy the body. Destroy the prison. Destroy that which holding you down, that which causes you to sin. You know, whatever you go through the list of what you... All the things the body is accused of. And Paul doesn't say the last enemy to destroy be destroyed is the body. He says the last enemy to be destroyed is that destroyer of the body. Death. The death of death. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That in his victory, he defeats death. And that wouldn't happen if our bodies are left here without any resurrection. I know you're probably thinking, well, Tom, I thought when you die, you go get a new body. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that in a moment. All right. Look at the next thing. There's a lot of good here. We're just surveying this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to verse 50. It says, but some will, man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? I mean, think that's a good question. If you were, you know, maybe at a question and answer session with Paul, would you raise your hand and say, Paul, I got a question. You say you believe in the resurrection. Well, first off, uh, how, how can that happen? You know, if you're, uh, part of some other person your molecules have joined. How, how's God going to get all that back together? Okay, so um, And uh, Paul, you know, what kind of body will he have? Uh, okay, don't ask that question. Let me warn you Look at the next verse Thou fool <laughs> I can't imagine I'm a sixth grade teacher some kid raising their hand and saying you know mr. Frazier, I have a little question about this fool I don't think I'd get very far that way. But he definitely got the reader's attention. You fool! Don't you know? Just look at some illustrations in nature, in creation, and you'll see the way God does things even in that can help you understand this difference in the resurrected body. He says, uh, he says, Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die, And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not the body that shall be, but bare grain. It may be chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. Okay, so he's saying, you know, take the illustration of planting a seed. By the way, if you take a kernel of corn and you plant, you grow a stalk of corn. Doesn't that stalk of corn look a lot different from the kernel of corn? All right. And let's suppose you eat some kernels of corn. Can you pick one of the kernels of corn on one of those cobs and say that's the one I planted? Or did that seed long time ago decay and die and become uh, you know the embryo part of it and the cotyledon part of it and all that became a plant and then it produced all oh, new corn? Right? That's what what Paul's saying is just just look at what God can do. Maybe he's illustrated by that. You know, they tell me that these giant sequoias that are out west, these giant sequoias, the largest trees in the world, as far as the volume of wood, the General Sherman, all these trees, you look at them, they're magnificent, that they came from seeds as small as a tomato seed. You know, when you cut a tomato, there's little bitty seeds. Whoa. I mean, if, you, if I think God can't do this, I mean, how in the world? I think, I think since we've learned in science about DNA and about information that is stored in these seeds, that maybe God doesn't need every molecule, every atom, all those things that were you. That might be dust. That might be spread. But he has the plan to build you again. Although the seed and the plant are different. Did one come from the other? Yes. That's what he's saying. When I get a new body, it is not a new body. It is this body made new. And even in that, it, it probably doesn't express it completely. There's a connection between my resurrected body and this one. And Jesus proved that when he came out of his tomb, the tomb was empty. He didn't come out with this brand-new body. He came out with a body that still had the scars of the wounds that he suffered. And there's a whole reason why he did it exactly like that, to show us that our resurrected bodies are these bodies made new. I know there are probably in your neighborhood some houses that have really, maybe over COVID, over all the Great Recession or whatever you call it, became just really run down you have houses in your neighborhood like that neighborhood and maybe some people bought them up and then they renovate them they take out all the stuff they put in all this new stuff and then one day you're driving by there and you think is that the same house i mean look at it i mean i don't even recognize it it looks so good and yet it is the same house Renovated. And there's going to be that. All of us, our bodies, whatever we're going through with them and experiencing with them right now. Don't get discouraged and think I'm just going to have this body. Oh, wow. It's no. God is going to take it. And He'll make a giant sequoia out of just a little seed. He can do that. The resurrection shows us that. Look what he says uh, also in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. Now, folks, you know, he's going again and again back to creation and nature and saying, look, folks, and he's answering this, you know, the question, the foolish question. Look what he's done when it comes to making, you know, different kinds of flesh. If he makes the flesh of animals and the flesh of people, why can't he make the resurrected flesh? The flesh of the resurrected body. And it's going to be different from that of people, your flesh here. And it's going to be different, of course, from the animal's flesh. Gee, he can do that. He's done it here. As far as I know, they can't take, I don't know, maybe, maybe they can do this stuff nowadays. But it'd be hard to take a frog's leg and attach it to my arm, you know, to me. I, I, there are certain uh, limitations on that. And he has, he has made these differences. And why, Paul says, can't he do that again with the flesh and bones that you will have for eternity? That it is different. Now, I didn't say flesh and blood, but flesh and bones because Jesus had that. He says that, Luke 24. All right. So I love verse 43. Um, I'm sorry. Let's go to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. I love these. I mean, I've been to enough funerals and w- those open casket funerals and seeing the people there and, and, and there's nothing, it seems more weak than a dead body. And we put them into graves and the Lord says, okay, you get ready because what you thought was weak and dishonorable and all those things that, that you put into that grave, they are going to Sprout, very differently. Honor, power. He can do that. And, you know, this, uh, this idea of the spiritual body. You know, some people deny the physical resurrection of Christ and the physical resurrection of the believer. And one of the things they point out is this verse. See, it says a spiritual body. But, you know, I don't know a lot about language, but I know spiritual is what you would call it an adjective. The noun here is important. And in fact, I would think that most of the time, adjectives are less important than the noun. The adjective is describing something. It is not the noun itself. It's a spiritual what? What's it say? Body. That's the key. It's not a spirit body. We're not going to have bodies that kind of have a a shape like us, I mean, a a spirit that's going to look like us. It is a body, but it's spiritual. I'll tell you what, my body right now is not spiritual. I have the kind of body, just like you, that is tuned like a radio to a different station (laughs) than the spirit. My body right now is tuned to this world. It is tuned to earth. It is tuned to earthly things. It is tuned to that. It's like a station that... Only one station on that radio, and it's the earth. And the Lord is saying that when we get our new bodies, they're gonna be so different, they're not gonna be tuned to the earth anymore, they're gonna be tuned to the spiritual. Amen. Amen. And I look forward to that. All the struggles you, you think of, well, why don't we just leave our bodies behind? Because we that is gonna be so different. Now, we gotta move on here, the last section. In verses 51 to 57, Paul talks about how death will be defeated. He says in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed." For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know, um, this is the rapture being spoken here. And while while Paul's talking about the resurrection, he, he logically points out that This is a mystery. This is something that hasn't been revealed in the Old Testament before. Don't look for this in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all 39 books. Don't look for it there. Paul says, this is a a truth that has been revealed just recently when this was written. And Paul says, this mystery or this truth newly revealed is we aren't all going to die. When the Lord comes and the resurrection happens, those that are resurrected are first and then those that have died in Christ are first. And then those that are alive and remain will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. So that's, that's, that's a neat thought that it could happen even now. If the next thing on the calendar is the resurrection and the rapture immediately follows, I mean, that is something that could happen before I finish. Yes. And that, that is what has to happen. We have to be changed in that sense to have an eternal state. With this new body and then it talks about a, a victory dance you know when when nfl players they get they get fine I mean, they can be fine as much as i make all year right okay just for doing hoo, 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 hoo. <laughs> down at the end of the field they are dancing around they're taunting they're taunting they're taunting and we all look at that poor sportsmanship well get ready you're going to get to taunt Here's the, here's the words to the song. I believe Paul records what will be said. It hasn't been said yet, because there's only been one resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. Ours has not happened yet. But when it happens, you might want to memorize these words, okay? What is it we sing? Okay, well, here it is. Oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? You see, that's a taunt. Come on, you think you're so powerful, death in the grave. You think you're so, you know, you've got control of everything. You think you haven't made You get all your way for thousands of years, and we're resurrected. That's a victory taunt. He says, uh, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is a law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to close with this, those three questions. Does that kind of make sense now when he says, therefore? I always memorize this verse without its context. Never thought about, okay, wherefore is the therefore? Why? Why would therefore be there? It's all built on this idea, this fact of the resurrection and what it means for us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let me me give you what I think he's saying here. He's not saying be steadfast in the work of the Lord. He's saying be steadfast in your belief, in your faith, in your assurance of the resurrection. Be steadfast. Because the Corinthian believers had evidently in their church, some people saying there is no resurrection, folks. And he had to write this letter to them to say, you don't know what you're saying. If there's no resurrection, we're done. Eat, drink, be merry. <laughs> because tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, what are you doing? So he's, he's, he's saying here, be steadfast in your faith. Be unmovable. Don't compromise this doctrine. Don't diminish it. Don't say, well, I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but, you know, it could be. I think I'm just going to get a new body. It has nothing to do with this one, okay? You have just taken... The power out of the resurrection. That didn't happen to Jesus. We can't go over there and find his grave and his body, right? And he's the first fruits. Yours and mine will be like his. So be steadfast, be unmovable, and then always abounding in the work of the Lord. If we're steadfast and unmovable in our application of the resurrection and the the hope and the anticipation of it, we will more easily abound in the work of the Lord. Discouragement, sadness, all those things that come with life, and especially suffering or watching others suffer and die, they can just rob us of our motivation. But the resurrection, the final victory, the looking forward to the taunting of the grave, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye, what? You know, your labor's not in vain in the Lord. How could we know? I asked that question, how can you know? Well, it goes all back to verse one, and verse two, verses three, verses four, and all those witnesses, because it's a fact. And you can know, your labor's not in vain in the Lord. You know, he says, our preaching's in vain. You're, you're, what you're doing is in vain. If Christ is still in his grave, but he's not. He's ra- he has risen. Therefore, your, your labor's not in vain in the Lord. You know, if you are here tonight and you don't know where you're going when you die, I know the resurrection message might, might give you something to think about because it is something that Christians can hope in. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the resurrection that's described in the book of Revelation will be a resurrection of your body just before it's cast into a place called hell forever and ever. And that that is a body, that's a physical existence in a place where there is no deliverance. That moment is right now. If you don't know you're going to heaven when you die, you can, you can put your faith in Christ right now and you can know that you're going to heaven. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes with no one looking around except me. You know, it says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins according to, the, uh, according to the scriptures and that he was buried. All right. That is what makes it possible for us to be forgiven. The fact that he died for our sins means that God is satisfied about our sins and he has paid for them. The fact that he was buried is important because it showed he was dead. <laughs> they knew he was dead. If he was just, you know, uh, carried away someplace, no, but he was buried. And so if, if you wonder, how can I be forgiven of my sins? Well, it's because he died and he was buried. But it's his resurrection that makes life possible. That makes it possible for us not just to be forgiven, but to be justified, to be given the righteousness we need. Because he's alive, we can know we're saved. A dead Savior can't save us, but a living Savior can. So when we put our faith in him, we're putting our faith in a living Savior. If you've never done that, the best you know how you could trust Christ as your Savior tonight, right now. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if if there's anyone that would like to say, Hey, Tom... I don't know if I understand all this, but I do understand I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness, and I thank you that you showed me that Jesus died for me, and he rose again. And I've told God that I believe he died for me. Would you raise your hand if you did that for the first time tonight? All right. Dear Lord, we do thank you for giving us this opportunity to look Thank you for 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we know, Father, that is because of the resurrection. Thank you for the reminder tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen.